Good morning, Edinburg Church family. Uh, if you haven't met me, I'm Pastor Bob. I've been around a lot of years, but I'm not up front very often anymore, just part-time working um, here at Edinburgh, but I've been here for more than 20 years, and uh, somehow I tried to back out of this stuff, and they just keep sucking me back in, you know. So, so welcome this morning. You know, one of the things that... Um, that occurs, you know, uh, there are a lot of good things about growing old, but one of the things I don't like is like every time you leave home, you, you feel like you're packing up to go on vacation, all the stuff you have to have with you. But uh, I just want to share a little bit before we get started here, um, what a great, awesome privilege it actually is to be able to share God's word and to speak about our Lord. So would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this opportunity to declare who you are, to sing, Father, of your greatness and your goodness. Father, we have no inkling what that actually looks like. But fill us, Father, with the power of the Spirit that we might be transformed into your likeness and thus sing your praises from a full heart. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, well, um, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you all know that um, when I was young, and I was reflecting back on that, that's more than five decades ago now, that I played sports. And I played a little bit of football. You need to know this about me. They never let me touch a ball. Um, I probably touched a couple of them because I fell on them by accident. But uh, I played some football, and uh, I played baseball. Now, it's been so long that the only glove I could find in the house actually belongs to one of my granddaughters. But I played some baseball, um, and I always remember uh, the season, no matter what sport I played. And by the way, how many of you know what this actually is? Yeah, I didn't play volleyball. I did play water polo, but you can't find a water polo ball, ball in Minnesota. But uh, that's... But you know what these three sports had in common as I was growing up? Every season, regardless of the sport, started the same way, with basic drills. With baseball, it was a matter of learning how to get in front of a ground ball and pick it up and throw and pivot and throw the ball. Hence, as you know, I never played shortstop because I didn't have that strong of an arm or that good at picking up ground balls, so they stuck me in left field. Football, I, I told you I'd never touched the ball unless it was by accident. Water polo, in, in football we always did think, but I remember those drills. It, was, it always started with foot placement and hand placement. Where are you? You know, what are you doing? Leverage is, is the name of the game if you're playing in the interior or on the very ends. And water polo, we used to, Hour after hour, dribble a ball. How many of you know what dribbling a ball is in water polo? You know, you swim, keeping it in front of you. Stop, learn how to pass. We did those drills endlessly. And I hated the beginning of every season, but it was essential. And if we screwed up during the year, guess what we did the next practice? Back to basics. Well, this morning, I want us to go back to some basics, some truths, some things that we need to firm up in our 
in our minds as we enter into this time of transition, these difficult ages and things that are going on in our lives. We need to come back to the basics. And Psalm 99 is what is called a royal enthronement song, a psalm. That was the psalms that were sung when the, the king was on his throne. In Jewish background, and of course in ours as well, this psalm is a messianic psalm. It looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come and he would rule in his greatness and in his glory. And um, it was an opportunity to declare who the Messiah would be and what he would be like because he would be the instrument of God in their lives. So we come, come to this understanding in this psalm, one through three ends with the phrase, holy is the Lord. And then the second stanza of the song, verses three through five, um, excuse me, um, six through uh, eight, um, I'm sorry, three through five, one through three, three through five, it also ends with the phrase, the Lord is holy. And then we have a little interlude there that we'll get to. And then the last stanza of the phrase ends with, holy is the Lord your God. Three times in this psalm, we're declared that God is holy. It's reminiscent of Isaiah chapter six and verse three, when Isaiah saw the enthronement of God and the angels and the, and the seraphim all declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And yet we have no idea what holiness really means. God is holy. So I want to affirm today two truths. And, and I, if you saw the title, it was called um, A Forgotten Truth. Well, there are two truths, but you can't really separate them. So we, I called it a single truth. But the reality is that we have this psalm given to us in this form. And so the first truth I want to affirm is that God is holy. What does that mean? What that means for us is that he is separated from sin. And most of us understand that, right? He's separated. God has nothing to do with sin. He had to find a way to deal with sin in order to bring us into his kingdom. But it is also to, in the biblical sense, to understand that God is devoted but to one thing, the honor of his name. The honor of his name. That's what he's about. 26 years ago, an author by the name of David Wells um, wrote a book talking about how um, the church is influenced by, church, uh, by the culture around it. And I'm going to share with you a rather extensive quote from him, but I think it's important for us to understand this. He wrote these words at the beginning of his book. We have turned to a God that we can use rather than a God we must obey. We've turned to a God who will fulfill all our needs rather than to a God before whom we must obey and surrender our rights to ourselves. He's a God for us, for our satisfaction, not because we have learned that by thinking of him that way through what Christ shared with us, but because we have learned to think of him that way through the marketplace. In the marketplace, everything is for us, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction, and we have come to assume that that must be so in the church. And so we've transformed the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. Profound statement there when we think about it. Sin not only gave us this incredible misunderstanding of the value and the reality of life, 
but it gave to us the sense that somehow we could reverse the order of life. And so we say these things very piously, but they're not biblical. How many of you have heard the phrase, God is my co-pilot? How many of you remember the book? There was a book, God is my co-pilot. It was about a World War II fighter pilot who sensed God's presence, and I understand what he was saying there. But we turned it into a phrase that means, you know, I, I, I control my life, and God's on the side, and something happens, I can call him in. You know, if, if there's an emergency and I can't handle the controls, I'll ask God to take, take over and, and, and land the plane. But the reality is that God is offended when we call him a co-pilot. He's never been anybody's co-pilot. He never wants to be anybody's co-pilot. He's the only pilot there is. He controls the universe. He holds it in the palm of his hand. He controls our lives. He holds that in the palm of his hand. And for him to be, seen, to be the ruler of all that is seen and all that is unseen, do you realize there's not a piece of cosmic dust that he is not aware of. And somehow we think we honor him by saying he's my co-pilot. It defames the glory and the nature of who God is. He is the one and only pilot of the universe and of our lives. Paul tells us this in some very historic ways. He tells us that, um, excuse me. He tells us, I want to first want to share with you Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel was looking forward to what we call the new covenant. When did the new covenant come? Oh, you know. When Jesus died, it's the communion service. He says he institutes this is the new covenant done in what? In my body and in my blood. He instituted a new covenant. Because we needed something new because we were incomplete and unholy and, and filled with self selfishness. And Ezekiel, looking forward to it, said this. I do not do this, is God speaking to Israel. I do not do this for your sake, the new covenant which is coming, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake. God did not save you because you're good. You stink, you're wretched. And that's even if you take a shower. This is not something that God just did because he, and hopes it will turn out okay. God declared the first, the new covenant, bringing us into a relationship with him so that, as Paul says to us in Philippians, that very famous passage, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what history is moving to. That's what it means to, for God to be holy. That he has taken all of history and he's moving it to one focal point where he will be honored and glorified in his son Jesus Christ. When every knee, and by the way, I've said this a thousand times, every knee will bow, either in frustration, fear, and anguish, or they will bow in adoration and hope the promise yet to come. But Jesus said, but, but God said, every knee will bow before my son. You can either do it because you wish to, or you can wait and be forced to do it. But God has declared that this is what it is about. It is about his son, and it is about his glory that he sent his son into the world for us. To be sure, the worldwide conquest of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ will not happen until he fully returns. 
But the promise of God is it will happen. And he did it for his, to glorify himself. That's what missions is about. Missions is not about saving people. It's bringing people into a relationship where they exalt the Lord and they know who he is. Because they were told in Revelation what? From every tribe and people and language, they will sing and adore before the throne of God, God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. So we need to understand that when we talk about the holiness of God, it's not about us. We get caught up in it, we get to be a part of it, but God is infinitely perfect and must of first importance, more than anything else, value the supreme good in the universe, which is him and him alone. Think of it this way. How many of you prayed prayers out of desperation for God to do something? And sometimes he answers and sometimes he doesn't. Because God is not here to fix your life. He's here for you to grow in the image of his son and be like him. God comes into our world. But if he chased the petty concerns that I bring to him and said, oh, that's so important, I better do that, then he ceases to be God because he's chosen to seek what is less than perfect and he forfeits the right to be the master of the universe. God is not the fixer of life. He is for us the one who is the first and foremost to the agenda of all of creation. We are to reflect the glory of God. And we should never experience change and fulfillment as God wants unless we recognize that reality in him. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. This is another reason you're growing old. I was just beside myself last night. I have this verse memorized, but last night I couldn't remember even the book it was in. But Jeremiah 17, 9. Um, the heart is what? Deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? In other words, even when I'm praying because my heart is deceitful and because I don't know what's going on, sometimes my prayers are inadequate because I deceive myself. I don't know what really my heart means. I don't really know what my heart wants. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and beyond cure. Hence the new covenant. God was not interested in fixing your old heart. It wasn't worth saving because it is infinitely corrupt. He did what? In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what did he promise us? A new heart. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old wasn't worth fixing. You do battle with it every day, right? But it wasn't worth fixing. He gave you a new heart through the gospel, through, <coughs> excuse me, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We enter into a new life in him full of riches and the fullest sense of what it means to walk with God. The thrill of finding out what it tastes like to be transformed by him and to know because of the transformation that he is real. That he is real. 
Paul, in writing to the saints in Ephesus, wrote, these, wrote several times to them about our salvation. And I didn't put it up here, but I want you to, if you think about it, go home and read the first chapter of Ephesians. It's three times as he talks about the manifold blessings of God's salvation, he reminds us it wasn't because he loved you so much. It was for his praise and glory, to the praise of Jesus Christ, to the praise of who he was and what he accomplished in our life. That's why he chose to save you. It was the only way he could display who he really was, the ability to transform broken sinners into a replication of his son, Jesus Christ, through life. Well, there's a second truth I want to share with you um, as well, and it's it's interesting. I by the way, I'm not getting anything out other than water here. My throat's dry. The second truth is one we know. First John chapter four and verse eight says this. God is what? God is love. Now in the Hebrew, they don't really have a phrase to be able to say God is holy. It's very clear in it, but they do it by, by multiple times saying it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. In, in Greek, in the New Testament, it just says, God is love. By the way, you can't reverse those, okay? Like our culture would like to do. Love is God. That doesn't work. But God is love. But God is love. And so we have that truth. Jesus said that he did what? Oh, I'm going to give you that. Back it up. Sorry, guys. To that. God is love. This is a definition of love because we don't understand this either. According to the scripture, God's love means that God is eternally giving himself to others. Eternally giving himself to others. Now, I gave Wayne Grudem credit for that because he uses it in a systematic theology book, which the staff read a few years ago. But because it's backed up by scripture, it's true, that statement. Jesus said, I have come to what? To serve, not to be served, and to give my life a ransom for many. That's the reality of what it means to love, and it means to serve. So much so that we cannot grasp who Jesus is unless we undergrasp, unless we grasp the fact that he is servant. Paul tells us this in, excuse me, in Philippians chapter 2, that famous passage where he talks about how God, Jesus came to earth and emptied himself of his character, of the prerogatives he has. Let me read for you, and I think we've got it up here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, and I want you to notice when we get to it a few ver words that are underlined, Okay. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of, of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to, to death, even death on the cross. Now what I want you to realize, if we look at that very nature, there's a word there in the Greek that, that means morph, the word is morphe. It means to, to take on the very essence and character. Jesus take, 
Jesus is the very essence and nature of God. But notice what else it said if you looked at that passage. In his essence, he is servant. But when he came, he had the appearance, that word is schema, to appear like. It doesn't mean he wasn't fully human, but he had the appearance of a human being. Now, here's the easiest way I think we can kind of picture this. Um, I was going to show you pictures of myself, but those were before cameras were made, so I'm not really young. Um, but think about it. Think of about a, a brother, a sister, or a child you've had, and you bring them home, and they're an infant. My mom and dad brought me home. I was going to be the middle child. It was obvious I was a boy. As an infant, I looked one way, didn't I? As a toddler, I looked a little different. How many of you had toddlers at least? And you know they don't look like infants, right? Nor do they behave like infants. And then he became a little boy. And then a young, middle-aged, grade school young man. And then a high school young man. And then a young adult. And then a middle-aged adult. And now a senior adult. In my essence, what am I? I'm still a boy. I'm still a male. Did my outward appearance change over those years? Thankfully so. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, and that's what it says when he be appeared as a man. But when he became down to earth, he was in essence God, and he was in essence what? Servant. Do you realize that when we talk about God being love and God being servant, that we cannot separate the two? God, in the form of Jesus, is servant. That's what makes him Jesus. So much so that this verse that I'm going to share with you, and I don't think I actually gave it to them to put up, but I'd like to share it again with you. I've used this because every time I read it, I just, it blows my mind. It comes out of Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Jesus is telling a parable. Oh, I did put it up. A parable about, about a master who goes away and then comes back and he finds his servants doing what he asked them to do being faithful to the charge he'd given to them, carrying out their duties and their responsibilities as loyal subjects of the king or the master. Then Jesus ends these words here with these powerful words. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself, who the master will dress himself and we'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Jesus in heaven is going to be waiting on us. The marriage feast of the Lamb. He loves to serve because that's his nature. It is who he is at the being, at, as his being. You know, when I've when I been in many hospital rooms at deathbed sides over the years, and when someone is about to go, and they haven't actually died technically, but they've laid there, and family will say, you know, it's okay if he goes or she goes because it's not them anymore. We realize that we are more than what our physical bodies were. Jesus is more than the man who walked this earth. He is the eternal servant of the universe. 
It cannot hold together without him. We cannot hold together. We will not stay in heaven unless he serves us because the world would cease to exist, the universe and the heavens would cease to exist. He is a servant. And we need to affirm that. So we have these true truths which the world has mixed up and which unfortunately we in the church have mixed up too, but they go together. God is holy. He is seeking his own honor. Everything will understand who he is in time. And he is love, which means he serves. And they come together in the form of Jesus. And out of those two great truths, we also find some action points for ourselves. The first action point that I want want us to think about is this. Stand fast in the truth. The truth is the word of God. It doesn't matter what I say. You can, I can come up here and be eloquent, and it doesn't matter if it isn't the truth. And so I want to encourage you to be people of the word, because in it is the truth. We're reminded in scripture, and I've said it before many times, the Bereans were... were uh, a group of uh, a town where Paul had gone, and it says they were honorable because they searched the scriptures to see if those things that Paul taught were true. We need to be people of truth, not people of America, not people of a political persuasion, not capitalists, but people of God's word, which is truth. People of the word, not of the bookstore. You know, I've come under, how many of you have gone through a crisis in the last three months? I've gone through a crisis myself because those things that I grew up with and that I held dear as an American are gone. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm confused and lost. I don't believe either political party. Um, they open their mouth and I'm assuming they're lying to me. I don't believe any of the media, right or left. I assume they're lying to me. I don't trust police officers, um, you know, in that broader sense, because I was taught to, to revere them and honor them, but I see that they don't always act in honor either. I don't trust politicians. I don't care if it's city, county, state, or federal government. I've lost any semblance of Respect, if I could say that, maybe that's too, too much. But I don't trust the medical establishment. I asked my doctor, I had a physical about a month ago, what he thought of masks, and he just refused to speak to me about it. <laughs> because, because he's confused too. So everything, my foundations were kind of built on as an American have been pulled out from under me. Except for one thing. God's word is truth. He speaks truth. He lives truth. He shares with us those truths. So let us first make sure we stand fast in the truth. Not on what other people are saying, but what the word of God tells us to be true. And then there's a second point of action. And we can stand in the gap. We read these words in the sixth verse of Psalm 99. Moses and Aaron were among the priests. Samuel were among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. Stand in the gap 
like God does, means to be called to be a, a Moses, an Aaron, a Samuel. Who was that in your life? Can you think of someone who stood in the gap and, and prayed for you? Who honored you by serving you? The person who immediately always comes to my mind is my father. I knew I'd do this. <laughs> um, I've shared that I remember my father crying out in prayer for me as a teenager. Heard him in the living room beseeching God to do something to me. And a father who worked two jobs because his wife was ill and never once complained, often came home and made dinner after working two jobs and never complained. He served. Now, I thought he was a fool. But he what? He was God living out in my living room. You and I have the privilege of being those who stand in the gap. Men and women, for your family, you can stand in the gap. You can stand in the gap. I'm gonna share three little truths for you about how to stand in the gap that really come from a story by a young man a number of years ago who lived in Bucharest, Romania under communist rule. And he was very bright. And, uh, but he was also a devout believer. He happened to be Seventh-day Adventist, which means he worshiped on Saturday, but schools were open on Saturday in, in Romania. And one day, the dean came to him and said, we notice you're gone every Saturday, and we know you're an Adventist, but in this country, there is no God. The next time you miss school on Saturday, you will be expelled. And he shares the story of going back to his dorm room in two days and two nights, pleading with God to save his education. Let him get the education he believed God wanted for him. And he heard nothing. Nothing happened. And so on Friday morning before Saturday came, he called his dad and asked him what he thought he should do. And his dad said, well, there's three things you need. First of all, is you need to change your prayer style. He said, you need to stand in the gap here. And you need, he didn't use those words, but that's what he did. His, he said, here's the first thing to standing in the gap as people. Sacrifice your will to God's will. Your prayer should mirror that of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friday night, I went to bed, and suddenly I started recounting um, a younger part of my, my years. Um, I didn't get serious with the Lord until I'd finished high school. And it was the summer after um, high school, and I was struggling with who I was and what I was supposed to be. Um, I thought it would be athletics. And so I told the Lord, you know, I'm gonna, I do want to walk with you. I do want to serve you. And this is how we should do it. <laughs> Mistake, right? Uh, I told him what I thought I could do. And I didn't really hear anything. Except there's a transformation that began to take place in tragic ways in my life. When I finished high school, I was still 17 years old. 
And I started to recount what happened between 17 and 19 in my life. I told God I wanted to play sports. I thought that was good. Uh, you need to know I, I was still coming out of um, being nine times in an emergency ward by poor mother. You've heard those stories. Recovering, and I was getting back into shape. Um, and then um, I injured my back, had to have back surgery. I was told I probably might not walk again. I would never play sports again. And so I was asking, Lord, what, what's, what am I to do? What, what, what's going on here? And then I got a letter because my father made a phone call that said I could go to Bethel. But everybody said, you can go, but you're not smart enough to make it. It's like too demanding. But I'm ignorant. Lord, I want to do what you want. In the meantime, I met a gal who was helping me rehab from back surgery and getting back to learning to walk and take steps, still living in a fantasy world of playing sports. And the next thing I knew, I asked her on a date in October and asked her to marry me in November, and she married me in July, and we packed up and left, and I wasn't even 20 years old yet. I had two years of college done. I had a brand new bride. I was going to a school where they told me I couldn't make it because I wasn't smart enough. No job, no place to live, and she followed me. By the way, July, we celebrated 50 years together. Um, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Um, 50 years. But when I prayed those prayers, I had said, Lord, this is what I think we should do, but not my will, yours be done. And I looked back and saw what God did in just less than 24 months in a young man's life. All the people who looked at me and said, you're insane. (laughs) You're not 20 and you're getting married and you're packing her up and leaving all your family and going 2,000 miles to a school where they told you you're not going to make it? Not my will, yours be done. Began to pray and seek God's direction and realize that sometimes we have to let go of our own dreams for him to bring his dreams into reality. It wasn't an education that he dreamt for me. It wasn't 50 years of marriage. Those were blessings. What he wanted was to transform a self-centered, egotistical young man into something he could use. And he did that. And his father said to him, this young man who talked to his father, sacrifice your will, do God's will. You should mirror the, your prayers should mirror, uh, mirror the words of Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So that... He can transform and do what he seeks to do in your life. God is more than anyone else could imagine. He comes before jobs, before houses, before education, even before our family. Jesus said this word looking straight at his disciples. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brother and sister, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We have to sacrifice what we think we want, what we are sure we do, even when we think it's in God's will with the phrase, but not my will, yours be done. And God can transform our lives. Second thing you need to to know about prayer and standing in the gap is seek first God's honor 
and his plans. Before you ask God for help with your plans, look and see what will benefit his kingdom and his plans. Worry about his work and let him worry about your work. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Make sure that in all your prayers, you put God and seek his plans and his greatness for you. Pray that God will do whatever he wants that will best honor him. I'm going to share a passage that I know I didn't give to them because I just came up with John, as I was looking through my Bible, John 14, 13 says this, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I read that passage over and over over the years. One day I was just sitting and thinking about it and I asked myself this question that transformed my prayer life. What will bring you honor and me the greatest joy? And I thought about it for a little bit. I can't think of anything that would honor God more and bring, bring me greater joy than if my children and my grandchildren should come to faith in Jesus. And I began, I put it right there. God could not be more glorified and bring greater joy to my life than if he called my children to himself and my grandchildren. And it transformed my prayer life because I knew that's what he wants to do. I continue to pray it for those who are too young and haven't made a decision wherever they might be spiritually with confidence because God would be glorified when he breaks through into their life and reveals who he is and declares the glory of Jesus Christ. Pray that. Stand in the gap for your family. And then I want one more that I need. I just have to let go. Oh, by the way, the story ends that on Saturday, Friday as he was leaving school, uh, the secretary of the school came and asked him if, if he knew the president of Romania. And he said, no. Do your family have connections in the government? Do they know somebody? No. And she says, well, it's interesting. We just got a note from the president that in order to improve the economy and, and, and save energy, all schools will be closed from now on on Saturday. He finished his education. You and I are called to, to stand in the gap just as they were. And so we need to stand. There's the third one here that we need to understand. Serve people around you. Love the people at school, work, and at home more than your success. They don't know God, but they might see him in you. Because here's the reality. There are two things that God does not ask me to share with in his character and his nature. He knows all things I don't. He's all-powerful, and I'm not. But guess what he did ask me to share in? His holiness. Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. To share in the glory and pointing, point people to him is to walk in holiness. And he says, and be loved. Serve others. That's the essence of our prayer and standing in the gap through service and action. Through service and action, we need to do this. You can stand in the gap. Prayer, to, the worship team's gonna come out, but I just wanna share with you these, these words. If you want to stand in the gap and you aren't part of a prayer chain or a prayer group, you can 
text me and I'll get you on the prayer chain here at Edinburgh. Just uh, text me or you can find my number or email would even be better. And the other way you can stand in the gap is to pray for your leadership. We're not perfect, we make mistakes. There's no such thing as a perfect staff, a perfect pastor, a perfect board. They make mistakes, we all do. But we need to be praying for them and upholding them in our prayers. And then the other thing that you can do is to pray for our mission. Our mission doesn't change. To bring people into uh, a growing relationship with Jesus. But what does change, and you're seeing it like crazy now, is the methods and objectives have to change. You heard, we're going to do Awana. We're trying to figure out how to bring back youth and children's ministries on Sunday come this fall. We need your prayers in that. And you can pray for wisdom for us. And you can volunteer. And in so doing, you stand in the gap. Love and serve God and others. And so fulfill the law of Christ.